0: Well, many of you probably saw that this past week, our sister Grace, uh, she became one of the last people to swear allegiance to the Queen in becoming a citizen of this country. Grace and her son Juan, they took citizenship vows on Thursday, just hours before the Queen died, and they promised in their lives as citizens of this country to live in such a way as to not bring reproach upon the crown, but rather to be loyal to it. Those of us fortunate enough to be born in this country, we live by the same vow, though we never take it verbally. By our birth certificate, it is binding upon us. If we were to break the laws of the land, a representative of the crown may bring charges against us. The authority of the crown vested in the constitution of this country and its parliament, it governs how we live. And this is a good thing. Not the monarchy, per se, but the idea that there is an authority that is binding how we live. This is part of God's design on this side of the fall. And sadly, this truth is something that is increasingly under attack in the West. The ability of any authority to bind how we live is questioned, and it's often undermined. As Christians, we cannot join in this trend. Romans 13.1, the authorities that exist have been established by God. Yes, no human ruler exercises that role perfectly. We are all sinners. But relatively good human authority leads to flourishing. It protects life. It restrains the effects of sin. This is God's design, not our design. Consider briefly the last words of King David in 2 Samuel Chapter 23, when one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloud this morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. Now think what you want about the queen, but she is widely regarded to have been one of those leaders, flawed without question, but ultimately of benefit to most of those living under her. She exemplified some of the characteristics of the Supreme King. Humility, servant-heartedness, gracious speech. And that was to the benefit of all those living under her rule. Now, my point of all this is not necessarily to eulogize the queen. It's to tell us this. Freedom from authority is not the highest good. Quite the opposite, in fact. The highest good, as the Bible puts it, is the freedom of a life lived in service to a perfect authority. And this idea is at the very heart of the book of Colossians, as we began to see last week. Chapter 2, verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Paul is adamant throughout this book, that Jesus Christ is the all-supreme King, and he is our all-sufficient Savior. No one and no thing comes close. He is the head over every power and authority. And as Christians, uh, this understanding must impact how we live our whole lives. This knowledge must not remain purely intellectual. It has to affect how we live. And last week, we, we took a long look at the person of Jesus Christ. We considered uh, the implications of his being alive and his right now ruling over the world as both fully God and fully man. We asked, why are those truths about the person of Christ uh, so important that they demand our loyalty? We determined they do because nothing else can possibly compare Because we're actually united to this God-man by faith, and because we've been given a new perspective on our earthly lives. And today we're going to focus mostly on the last bit of that answer that we saw last week with a new question. Given the eternal supreme authority of Jesus the God-man, how should we now live? Verse 2 of chapter 3 operates as a great summary sentence, as an initial answer in a way to that question. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. That is how we should live. But what does that look like? The gospel, it has changed our perspective on life. We have a new mindset. We must now live in the reality that the risen Jesus is the supreme authority over the world. We must organize the priorities of our lives so that we make time for things that will last into eternity evangelism, discipling other Christians, parenting. We must die to our own desires and promote the cause of the gospel. And here in our text today, Paul is going to get very practical. He's instructing the Colossians on what it looks like to have that mindset in a number of different contexts. He tells about it in the church, 5 to 17, in the home, towards the end of chapter 3, and then quickly twice at the beginning of chapter 4, in their prayer lives and in the world. And so with that roadmap to guide us, we're going to dive straight into verse five. There's a lot of text to cover here today. It's our first context, the church, and we will spend the bulk of our time in this point here today. So don't get worried. Verse five, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Now we need to look back to verse three to understand the therefore in that sentence. Verse three, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Paul's essentially saying, because you died, kill. Your old nature died with Christ. Now you have to kill its fruit. And that may sound like a contradiction to some of us here today. But it's the kind of exhortation that actually is repeated. It's a repeated pattern throughout the New Testament. A helpful way to think about it might be this phrase. Become what you are. Become what you are. Doug Moo describes this well. He writes this, This putting to death of sin is not only demanded by our incorporation into Christ, it is also empowered and affected by it. The imperative put to death in the verse must be viewed as a call to respond to and cooperate with the transformative power that is already operative within us. It really should remind us again of John's sermon. In John 15, a couple of weeks ago, remember that? We saw that Jesus abides in believers to the degree that his words abide in us. And believers abide in Jesus to the degree that we obey his words. In other words, all Christians, we are vitally connected to our powerful savior, but we are responsible to obey or to put it into Colossians terms. Our sinful nature has indeed died with Christ, but we are also responsible to put it to death. We must put to death the sin that remains in us, but we are only able to do this because we are first united to Jesus in his death for sin. So after that opening command, Paul provides examples of things that should belong only to the past lives of the believers in Colossae. He provides two lists. There's one in verse 5, there's another in verse 8. They both follow the same pattern. There's a list of five vices, five sins, and then a brief comment on the last one. Let's look first at verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. This list, it directly ties us back to the end of chapter 2. Colossians 2.23, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Sensual indulgence is a good summary of the list of sins in verse 5. All of them have a sexual connotation, even the word translated greed. Uh, here in this text, it has a sexual uh, tinge to it. The promoters of the new philosophy in chapter two, these false teachers, they were concerned about external rules towards holiness, food and holidays and seeking after visions. God is concerned about sins that come from the heart because of these things. Verse six, the wrath of God is coming. Why is it that sexual sin is singled out here? Because it's uniquely corrupting for the Christian. 1 Corinthians 6.18 Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Recall what Paul has just said about the Colossians in Colossians 2. They are intimately united to Christ. He is the head. They collectively are his body. Therefore, a sin against their bodies as Christians is now a sin against the body of Christ. And this isn't just heinous sexual sins like rape or incest. Paul's list gets down to the level of our thought life. Lust, impure thoughts. And the word translated sexual immorality in verse 6, that refers to all. Sexual activity outside of marriage marriage as the bible defines it the lawful exclusive lifelong union between one man and one woman And brothers and sisters. We cannot play with this kind of sin. We cannot let impure thoughts run Unchecked in our lives. They aren't benign. They are deadly We need to put them to death. That's what paul says here be killing sin or it will be killing you At the root of all these sins is idolatry As verse 5 concludes, sexual sin, it trains our consciences to not be alarmed when we have elevated our desires over the will of God. With every one of this kind of sin, be they private or heinously public, we make a pitiful claim of autonomy over our own bodies. We say to the one who created them, I know what's best. We mimic the action of Eve in the garden. We make idols of ourselves. Now, it's important to note that the threat of God's wrath in verse 6 is is not an empty one and doesn't stand alone here in this text. We have another tension here in the New Testament. God's people, we are guaranteed deliverance from wrath. Jesus Christ took that upon himself. But at the same time, they are repeatedly warned that persistent, sinful behavior will bring God's judgment. Listen to Revelation 21.8, the Apostle John's vision of the last day. But the cowardly the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice the magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars. They will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Friends, one day all of our sins will be put to death. We can, by virtue of our faith, nail them to the cross of Christ and have his death bear them away forever. Or they will die with us, and we will bear them in the lake of fire. Look at the second list of vices in verse 8. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. This list could be summarized as sins of speech. The first three items, anger, rage, and malice, they are attitudes that give rise to the last two actions, slander and filthy language. Paul's concern seems to be, as he notes, for sins stemming from the lips. Again, sins stemming from within us going out. Notice, though, that Paul uses a a slightly different imperative here. He doesn't say put to death. He says, rid yourselves. Why does he do that? Are they lesser sins? I don't think so. The difference, I believe, is that unlike the first list, these sins are not easily hidden. These sins are almost entirely on the social plane. And therefore, the action against them may be corporate as well as individual. And so these sins, they have a corporate aspect. And Paul adjusts his command slightly. He says, get rid of them. That's one word in the Greek. It can be used to refer to taking off clothing, as we see in Acts 7.58, when the witnesses laid their coats, this is the same word, at the feet of a young man named Saul. And it's an action that brings with it connotations of church discipline. 1 Corinthians 5, expel the wicked person from among you. Get them out, remove them, rid yourselves of them. We mustn't forget that Paul is addressing a whole church here in this whole letter. It's not just a bunch of individuals. Everything from verse 5 to verse 17 is about life in the church. It's easy when we start talking about things, when we we talk about mortification of sin, we, we tend to only think on the individual level. But this simply isn't how the Bible views it. Of course, there's individual culpability, individual responsibility for our sin. We're each responsible before God. But in these last days, God's people are united to one another in Christ. Paul's about to get very explicit about this. Starting in verse 9 and right on through the rest of these eight verses. He starts to use all kinds of very corporate language. Look at verse 9. Do not lie to each other. Not just generic do not lie to the butcher down the street. Don't do that. But Paul is especially concerned that the Colossians do not lie and do not hurl slanderous language at each other. Why? Why? Because, verse 9, you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its Creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Christ is in all. All of you, the Colossians. In other words, since you've all gone through the same conversion and are united to the same Savior, do not sin against each other. You are only damaging your own body. Rid yourself of this behavior. Rid it in your own lives, yes, and when necessary, rid it from your community through church discipline. Paul likely has the pushers of the new philosophy in mind here, if indeed they're false teachers within the church. They've been putting divisions where Christ is, has not sinning against his body. But verse 11, here and again here means here in the community of those who have new life in Christ, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Paul essentially he goes through the false teachers' teaching and he eliminates all of their points. Don't divide and slander over kosher food laws. There is neither Jew nor Greek, Don't divide or slander over circumcision. Why? Because you've all had the circumcision of Christ, his death. Barbarians, they didn't speak Greek. They were presumed uncivilized. Uh, Scythians, they had a reputation for being uneducated. So Paul uses these two groups as extreme examples. His point is, do not divide and slander over race and socioeconomic status. Do not even think you can speak to slaves in the church in a different way that you can speak to their masters. We're going to see more on that later. You are all united to the same supreme and risen Savior. Live like it. Get your eyes off the desires of your own body. Stop tearing down the bodies of others. Look up. Set your eyes on Christ, who is the head. Do not sin against his body. Paul turns from the negative to the positive in verse 12. If the Colossians are to rid themselves of the earlier behaviors, this is what they are to replace them with. Love as the overarching banner encompassing all of these other virtues. The love of Christ, that is. Not the love of Hallmark or the love of Hollywood. This is love that is not concerned with one's fulfillment or desires. It is a love in the shape of the cross, I love how Paul Tripp defines this cruciform love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. It's this kind of love that compels us to bear with brothers and sisters who don't seem to love us back. It's this kind of love, the love that stems from our union with Christ that makes us patient, humble, gentle, toward one another whereas idolatry is what defines the sins of verses 5 to 11 love is what defines the virtues of 12 to 14 i hope you notice the corporate language i tried to highlight it for you there there isn't an individual call to holiness per se here though it's certainly implied it's a profoundly corporate one the one another command of verse 13 is one of dozens like it in the new testament It's aimed at Christians in the context of their local church. It's really confusing and and kind of overwhelming to try to obey all these commands outside of that context. If you believe yourself to be a Christian here today, but you're not intimately connected with a local church, not known by one, loved by one, extending your love to one, brother, sister, I would simply ask you why? Why? Why are you putting yourselves at arm's length from the context that God has designed his chosen people to live in these last days? The local church is the context in which we are best enabled to set our minds on things above. Why is that? Because it's a heavenly institution. Christ is its head. The people who comprise the church, as shabby and humble as we may look at different times, These are people whose lives are hidden with Christ at the right hand of God. A local church is a foretaste of heaven on earth. I know I sound like a broken record. I said that a few weeks ago. But Pastor Alex, you might say this to me. Pastor Alex, you don't know how I've been hurt by the church. You're right, I don't. The sad fact is that sometimes the church often looks more like verses 5 to 11 than it does verses 12 to 14, doesn't it? But brother, sister, we cannot base our decisions. We cannot base our sanctification, our spiritual life on the failings of men. We must base them on the word of God. Paul likely wrote his letter to the Ephesians at the same time as his letter to the Colossians. A lot of the same themes in these letters. Listen to what Ephesians 3.10 says about the church. God's intent was that now through the church. The manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Do you want to exalt Christ, the supreme authority, over and against those lesser authorities who rage against him? Join a church. Invest in its life. Verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. There's two pieces in this verse. The vertical peace that we each have with God through Christ, it demands a horizontal peace that we have with each other. I'll say that again. The vertical peace we have with God through Christ demands a horizontal peace with one another. We are members of one body. By the way, this is one of the places the Bible uh, uses the term that we We kind of get church membership out of—that's where we got it from. In case you're wondering, we didn't steal it uh, from uh, country clubs. It's a biblical image, a biblical idea, and of course, there's the universal sense of it. Every Christian everywhere throughout history is a member of Christ's body, but every local church is a tangible manifestation of this truth. We can see it in space and time in a way we can't see that universal picture—at least not until the last day. When we took the Lord's Supper today. We saw it. We all took the same bread, the same cup. We were one in Christ. We share the peace with God he offers and extend it to those around us. And be thankful, Paul adds, at the end of verse 15. It's kind of a jarring phrase right there at the end of the sentence. But it's not unexpected. Uh, Paul's been emphasizing gratitude and thankfulness really throughout this letter, throughout chapters one and two, and it stands to reason when we are marked by gratitude, we are quicker to extend grace and forgiveness to others. In other words, gratitude is the enemy of pettiness. Gratitude is the enemy of pettiness. Let me give you a practical example. I recently distributed directories uh, to every member of this church. I encourage you to look at a picture, each day when you're praying, pray for that person. Thank the Lord for his saving work in their life. Praise God for them. Ask him to use them in your life to sanctify you. Pray for faithfulness in their daily lives. If we all did this with regularity, I think interpersonal church conflict would be dramatically reduced. Verse 16. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. This is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. When you catch God's vision for corporate worship in this verse, you will never look at or experience a Sunday morning the same way again. How do we set our minds on things above? One of the answers absolutely must be, through corporate worship with God's people. It's not the answer, but it is one of the ways. So what is this message of Christ at the beginning of this verse? I'm glad you asked. It is the story of the Bible, or how verse 15 might put it: it, is how man can have peace with God. It is the proclamation that God is the creator who made man in his image, and yet man rebelled against him. And so God sent his son into the world to save these rebels by taking the penalty for their rebellion, which was death. And because this son Jesus bore no guilt of his own, he rose again to new life. Now offering his death as a substitute for all who will come to him by faith. Believe in that message, the message of Christ. Repent of your sin and your life also will be hid with Christ. This is the message that must pervade our corporate worship. And Paul puts a specific emphasis on one aspect of our worship here, doesn't he? Singing. I have to restrain myself a bit on this one. I get excited. Teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs of the spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Three observations. The purpose of singing is to teach and correct. Teaching doesn't begin and end with the sermon. The songs we sing are intended to train ourselves in righteousness. That's why at New City, we, we prioritize songs that have theological weight to the lyrics. It's also why we try to prioritize the voice. We need to hear the words, not the guitar riff. And so we will often sing a cappella or with the mix set so that we can clearly hear the words. Number two, our singing has a dual audience, one another and God. I think most people understand the God part. I think that one's pretty much across the board in churches, darkened rooms, eyes closed, swaying. It's the default of most churches today I think because they're trying to promote that experience. God and me, God and me. That's what I'm doing as I'm singing. But singing has a horizontal plane. That is why we recently altered our seating arrangement. I know it's not perfect. Uh, This room is difficult to make it perfect. Um, But we need to see and to hear each other when we sing. Honestly, if I had the opportunity to design a new sanctuary all to myself, it would be a minimum 180 degrees around this pulpit. Down in Washington, it was 270. I was over here looking at people when I was up here. And that's, it was awesome when we were singing. We need to see each other and sing to one another. That is God's design for this means of grace. Thirdly, congregational singing sets our minds on things above gets right to the heart of our point here today singing the message of christ with gratitude in our hearts lifts our eyes above the troubles of the world into the world to come singing together is one of the best ways to steal one of john's favorite phrases to put on our eschatological sunglasses to view life in the context of eternity matt merker puts it this way our singing anticipates something else another time and place Our singing is not yet what it one day will be. It offers a foretaste of the day when all God's family will gather around the throne. No power or principality will oppose us. The trumpet will sound. A new song will begin. And God's people from every tribe and tongue will lift up an anthem of praise that will echo on and on and on into eternity. Verse 17. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed... Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Put another way, everything we do or say must be governed by the fact that Jesus is alive and reigning. This verse really functions as the climax of the whole section. It's a transition into Paul's latter few exhortations. It's almost as he writes this sentence, he decides, I'm going to get a little more specific I'm going to put some more meat on these bones, but this is the summary. This is the big picture. Everything we do is because of who Christ is and where he is now and how he is reigning. Paul wants to make it abundantly clear that this heavenly mindset extends into every facet of our lives, not only the church and our individual discipleship to Christ. And so Paul elaborates with three more contexts after he says this sort of summary sentence. Three more contexts in which the Colossians must set their minds on things above, not on things below. In the home, in prayer, in the world. Again, before you panic, this sermon is two-thirds over. Uh, These last three points are much shorter, matching how Paul deals with them in the text. Uh, First, Paul, he turns to the home. Paul goes there. He steps on toes. Brothers and sisters, our family lives are not outside the sphere of correction. I think our default reaction when another Christian gives us advice on how to be a father or a wife or some other familial role is to put up our defenses and say, you don't know me. You don't know what's best. You don't know how I was raised. You don't know that it worked for me. Brothers and sisters, this is a sinful reaction. None of us have cornered the market on parenting. None of us are the perfect husband. We need to be able to receive instruction and correction in these areas invite other christians actually to give you instruction on it not just your pastors other members of the church swallow our pride seek to fix our minds on things above in the home where often we have quite a few blinders of our own paul addresses three pairs in the household he moves from the most to the least intimate and interestingly he addresses uh, the weaker partner first the partner in the weaker position He doesn't exonerate them of all duty as the oppressed one. No, he addresses both parties in the same way. And he makes essentially the same point. Ground your role in the supreme rule of Christ over your life. Ground your role in the supreme rule of Christ over your life. He turns to husbands and wives first. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives do not be harsh with them. The parallel passage, again, of course, to this is Ephesians 5, 22 to 6, 9. And again, Paul likely wrote Colossians and Ephesians at essentially the same time. In that passage, we see that marriage is ultimately a portrait of the gospel. The wife representing the church and the husband Christ. This version here we get in Colossians, the shorter version with the same point wives should submit to their husbands. That is, they should voluntarily put themselves under the spiritual leadership of their husbands. Husbands should love their wives. That is, they should lay down their lives for the spiritual good of their wives. Why? Because this is God's design going back to creation. The wife is to help her husband. The husband is responsible to God for his family's well-being. This is God's good design that sin has corrupted, that our sinful flesh screams against, and we need to scream back. Wives, submitting to your husband's leadership is part of your overall submission to Christ. That's where Paul grounds it here. Now, I've encountered many mature, godly women who find themselves married to immature but Christian men. What do they do? A loophole. That does not make this verse any less of a command. Paul grounds it in the Lordship of Christ. If you are not submitting to your husband, you are not submitting to the Lord. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you have to be a doormat. That certainly does not mean you need to let yourself be abused. It might mean you endure some unwise decisions. It probably means you do gently push back at times, and it certainly means you do everything you can to enable the leadership of your husband in the home. What does that look like? It means not constantly undermining your husband's decisions as poor as they may be, especially ones that are relatively trivial. It means you aren't openly annoyed by his failures all the time. It means positively that you encourage him that you encourage him and give him opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to lead, that you regularly and genuinely solicit his opinion. Now, husbands, we are commanded to love our wives and to not be harsh with them. And on the surface, that looks a lot easier than the command given to women. At least it does until you realize that when Paul says love here, he means it in the same way he did earlier in verse 14. Love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. Also known as the love that looks like the gospel. And so husbands, in what tangible ways are we going out of our way to die to our desires in order to do good to our wives? Are we keeping score with our wives? Are we more likely to sacrifice for our boss than for our wives? When our wife gives us sass, do we fire back in the same tone and feel justified for that petty action? There's one I need to work on. The Lord knows. Husbands must set our minds on things above to love our wives in this way. It is to see her the way God does. The way Christ does his church. To lay down our lives to that magnitude for her ultimate spiritual good. That is an extremely high calling. And I would dare say a more difficult command to fulfill than the command to submit. The next pair Paul addresses are children and parents. Children obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Children are to obey their parents. Why? Because it pleases the Lord. I was going to preach this to David, but he's not in the room at the time. But David, when your dad gives you an instruction, you can show this to him after. When your dad gives you an instruction, you should obey him. That's what the Bible says. Not because your dad is necessarily deserving. Because your dad has been placed over you by God. In obeying your dad, you are obeying God. And parents, we need to labor to teach our children this truth. We need to root our authority in God's design and in his ultimate authority. And this will help us when we make a mistake. And we will make many, many, many mistakes as parents. In those moments, we need to be willing to admit our faults to our children, not fearing that it will undermine our authority, but actually strengthening our authority by pointing our children to the grace of the gospel. We do not want our children to be hammered into our own image. We want to point them in the direction of the one who is worth obeying and worth imitating and worth being made into the image of. We want them to see that in their submission to us, unwise as it may be at times, They are submitting to God, which is always wise. Paul singles out fathers in verse 21. Did you notice that shift from verse 20 to 21? He says parents, plural in verse 20. Then he says fathers in verse 21. I think there's a point to be made there about the spiritual formation of our children and the primacy of the father uh, in in that role. Dads, how are we living this out? How are we spiritually training and encouraging our children? One way to embitter and discourage our kids is to neglect or ignore them spiritually. Fathers, we need to remember that we are 50% responsible for the creation of a soul that will spend eternity in heaven and eternity in, or eternity in hell, one or the other. And God has called us to spiritually lead our families, and that burden should sit with us. Let's ask ourselves, how do these truths bear on the current priorities of our lives as fathers? The last pairing is between masters and slaves. Verse 22, slaves obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs. There is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Again, the commands for this pairing, they are grounded firmly, in the lordship of Christ, particularly to the slaves. The supreme rule of Jesus over the lives of both the Christian slave and the Christian master is what matters. It's what grounds them in their roles. Now, I know this this language is uncomfortable uh, because we are in near proximity in both history and geography to the atrocities of black slavery in America. This is not the one-to-one equivalent to Paul's slavery. Slavery was a part of the Roman economy and many other ancient kingdoms, Uh, People could choose to sell themselves into slavery. It was really a form of bankruptcy. Certainly others were trafficked into slavery. There was cruelty in this form of slavery as well. But it was ubiquitous in Paul's day. Almost a third of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves in Paul's day. Meaning there was likely a lot of slaves and a lot of masters in the Colossian church. This is a household relationship Paul must address in this context. These verses, they shouldn't be uh, weeded through uh, a strainer to try to make support for the institution of slavery. Certainly, they don't. Or to uh, rule the institution of slavery out. They're simply addressing the reality of the moment. What is striking historically about these commands is that Paul treats both groups as equal in Christ. Look at how Paul affirms the human value of the slave in verse 24. Since you know... That you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. The slave is due a son's reward. Slaves did not inherit. But they do if they are in Christ. They are set to receive the same inheritance as their masters. And this truth should cause them to work well. Because really they've been purchased by another master. Christ. It is the Lord Christ they are serving in all they do. It's a verse... Again, we have to be careful with making a one-to-one to our workplaces with this text. It's dealing with a very specific context in the first century. But that verse in particular, it is the Lord Christ they are serving. You can put that on your desk at work. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Slaves should set their minds above their difficult earthly situation and consider eternity. Paul's word to the masters in the Colossian church comes off fairly stern in comparison to the other groups. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Paul essentially warns them the Lord will hold them accountable for how they treat their slaves. In the culture of the day, in the first century, in Colossae, slaves, they remounted the same value as a tool. This cannot be for the Christian master. They must provide for these image bearers in their household, The master of these masters commands it. And so husbands, wives, children, parents, slaves, masters, all must set their minds above the day-to-day challenges of the relationships that they are in, and they must put them in the perspective of Christ's supreme and eternal rule. The home cannot be an exception from this mindset that governs the Christian life. Context number three, in prayer. Chapter four, verse two, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Again, the mindset of chapter three, verse two extends into our prayer life. That might seem obvious, but it's surprisingly easy not to do well. We are all prone to having our own priorities in prayer. And too often our prayers sound something like this Heavenly Father, thank you for saving me. I'm sorry for being angry at my kids this week. Please bless me in my work and my family life. Help my wife to show more compassion. Help my kids to sleep at night. I pray that you would bless the work of my church. In Jesus' name, amen. None of that is inherently wrong. It's okay, even a good idea, to pray all of those things that I included there. But there's a perspective problem with that kind of prayer. If that's the sum total of our prayer life, Paul exhorts the Colossians to devote themselves to prayer that is marked by watchfulness and thankfulness. Devote, that means resolute persistence. That's how much we should pray if we're in this right mindset. This resolutely persistent prayer life should probably have a lot more thanksgiving in it than we normally do. I think we often see it as a waste of time. Be thankful. God already knows that I'm thankful. It's not bringing anything about for anybody. It seems like I'm just wasting time in my prayer. This is for our own good, as we saw earlier. Frequent gratitude constrains sinful tendencies, reminding ourselves what we are thankful for. And what does it mean to be watchful in prayer? Watchfulness is a common theme in the New Testament. It's often, when Paul uses it, it's in the reference to the imminent return of Christ. Not in the sense that Christians should literally be watching for Christ's return, like eyes to the sky, but they should be watching their own lives and conduct in light of the imminent return of Christ. Given the church context, again, of this whole letter, uh, it stands to reason that Paul means here, pray for your own and each other's sanctification. When's the last time you prayed for another brother or sister that they would be effectively putting sin to death? That is something we should do, often. Verses 3 and 4 are dedicated to prayer for gospel advance. Paul asked the Colossians to pray for himself and those in prison with him in Rome. And again, notice Paul's priorities that he models here in this request. He does not ask for them to pray for his release. He asks simply that God would provide opportunities for the gospel and that he would take advantage of them when they come to him. Here, Paul is providing an example from his own life of what a Christian with their mind set on things above looks like. The summary of all this is this. Too often, our intercessions, our prayer life, is too earthly. We pray for outcomes to earthly situations, with our own ideas of what is earthly good, with no consideration or reference to God's glory or the eternal good of those or the situations that we are praying for. Let's change that. Let's make our prayer lives set more upon things above. Lastly, Paul commands the Colossians to have this heavenly mindset in their engagement with the outside world. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. This is a call, really, to all of life evangelism. If Jesus Christ is alive and on his throne, then this must be how we engage the world, at least the context in which we engage it. Does it mean we have to stand on the street corner with a megaphone? Probably not. It might for some people in some places with some gifts, but Paul is actually quite careful with his words here. There are five elements of his description of faithful Christian living in the world, in light of Christ's reign. Number one, wisdom. Right at the start, Paul says, be wise. And I think sometimes we fall right there at that first hurdle with engaging the world. When Christians are a minority in a relatively hostile culture, as they were in Paul's day and as we are increasingly today, engaging the world takes some thought. It takes discernment. There will be some situations that call for a direct challenge, others that call for careful reasoning, And still others where silence may be the wisest decision. And this does not contradict with the second description of faithful engagement with the world. Number two, make the most of every opportunity. That's what Paul says. I will say to you, some opportunities may call for silence. That might be making the most of it. Like that heated Facebook argument that is just begging for a gospel mic drop. That may be the best time to be silent. That said... The general sense of Paul's exhortation here should move us more often than not to action. Most of us let far too many conversations pass us by where we make no effort to turn the topic toward things of eternal value. I think this is often because we're unprepared. We are living our lives on cruise control and just letting our day come at us. We need to put some forethought and some prayer into our interactions that are ahead of us for the day. If we know what's ahead of us, we should pray for our coworkers or our neighbors that we know we might encounter that day. Try to remind yourself right before even you enter into that conversation, put a reminder in your phone. If you know exactly when it's going to happen or just try to recall it before when you see someone walking towards you, that this is a priority in your life. This is part of what it means to be a Christian. Thirdly, Speech covered with grace. Some of us need to hear this one more than others. This is a very good word in the age of social media. Let's not try to catch unbelievers in traps. Let's not stomp all over them with our words. Seek instead to understand their position, put their motives in the best light, and by all means, remember the grace that was shown to us as we engage with the lost world. But for grace, we too would be lost. We are beggars showing other beggars where there is bread. That should soften our tone and season our words with grace. Speaking of seasoning, number four, we should be interesting. That's actually what most commentators think Paul means by the phrase seasoned with salt here. Don't be boring. The gospel isn't boring. Know the culture that you are living in. Try to use illustrations and accessible word pictures. Learn how to give your testimony in an engaging way that gives glory to God. Don't exaggerate it, but give glory to God. But Pastor Alex, my testimony is boring. I came to faith as a child. So did I, and no, it's not. You were dead in your sin, and now you are alive in Christ. That is amazing. Learn how to magnify the gospel's work in your own life and through the word of God. And finally, we should prepare to answer everyone. No, none of us will be able to answer every critical question about the faith right on our toes. But the effort here stands. We should want to learn more about life's hard questions. We should want to learn more about how to engage with a skeptic and just in general with the unbelieving world. It's not enough to offload that task on apologists or a few pastors every christian bears the privilege of evangelism equally and it is a privilege if a question stumps us graciously admit that you don't know but promise to look into it offer to search the scriptures with them seek advice from your brothers and sisters here's a here's a call really to the wisdom of team evangelism call in support from other brothers and sisters. Mix church family with your non-Christian friends. Introduce someone that you bring to church to other Christians. Go to lunch together with them. Oftentimes, it's not the first Christian that engages an unbeliever with the gospel that sees fruit, but it's the fifth or the seventh or the 20th. If you want to be encouraged about that, talk to Phoebe or Christina after the service today. They'll give you a very recent example of that very thing happening in the lives of a sister in one of our churches in this city. So let's review. We've just chewed through the whole body of the letter to the Colossians in two weeks. As a Herculean task, I feel a little bit dirty for doing it that way. Uh, but we need to know, why is this book in our Bibles? That's what we set out to do uh, last week. It's this, to remind us that we Christians serve the Supreme King, the only All-sufficient Savior of sinners. And not only do we serve Him and are we saved by Him, but we are intimately united to His person. And all of these truths must impact how we live. We must now live in the reality that the risen Jesus is the supreme authority over the world. We should organize the priorities of our lives so that we make time for things that will last into eternity. Evangelism, discipling other Christians, parenting. We must die to our own desires, take on the cause of the gospel. And we do this in every facet of our lives, from the church to the home, on our knees in prayer, out in the world. Paul's desire for the Colossians and God's desire for us is that we would genuinely be able to pray the third verse of our closing hymn today. O Father, use my ransomed life in any way you choose and let my song forever be my only boast is you. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Let's pray.